Mac Power Users, Episode 115, Workflows with Glenn Fleischman. Well, hello, everyone. It's David Sparks. Along with me is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. Today, we have a special guest, Mr. Glenn Fleischman. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. You know, Glenn, I've been a fan of yours a long time, and uh, I feel like we are our brothers in arms. You know, <laughs> we were talking before the show started how both of us started uh, computing when you'd measure the memory in K, and it was usually a single digit number. And that's always fun uh, seeing the paths we take as we started out nerds. Yeah, I was. Um, it's funny. I I don't know why I developed an interest in computers when I was little, but I always was fascinated by them. I had a a friend who was more an electronics guy, and this was, you know, when we were eight or nine, and he was building stuff out of um, spare parts, and I got interested in soldering, and then I got a computer when I was 11 in 1979, an early 6502 machine that was sort of just past the hobbyist stage, and yeah. uh, taught myself to program, and just had an affinity for that sort of thing. But then I moved on to doing theater in junior high and high school, and uh, didn't return to being serious about computers for some years after um, my first exposure. Hey, it's, you were the same age, and um, and the listeners have heard this, so I don't want to dwell on it. But I, I used to get on my 10-speed, my Schwinn, and ride down to Radio Shack. And the guys there, <laughs> yes, they were nice enough to let the nerdy little boy play on the computer for hours at a time. I would sit there for hours. And I had a little basic book, and I'd write programs. I did my own text adventures. I thought I was it. And then I'd, of course, save it at the end on a cassette disc. Yeah, tape, same you know? experience. There was a computer, st- an independent computer store. Uh, a biking distance away from my house and they had uh, Apple twos and Apple threes and Lisa's and other, I mean, they actually had an Apple three that worked amazingly enough Wow! and uh, a few other things. And um, it was a fun place. I used to go out and there hang out and they tolerated me for, for long enough. And eventually I think, I think I bought my computer from them because it was inexpensive. It was a $333 computer in 1979. So I still thank my parents for poning up the cash. For that, getting gifts from relatives or something and started me down the path that I find myself in today. Well, and that's what brings you here. Uh, Glenn, you do many things. Uh, you are, of course, uh, more recently a Jeopardy champion, which we're definitely going to talk about a little bit. But uh, even more importantly, I think uh, one of the premier tech writers out there, I mean, you write for The Economist, uh, you do work for Tidbits, you do work, you still write for Ars Technica? I do. I don't think I've written yeah. for them for a while, but just because of time, I, it's my schedule keeps getting more and more full with um, with recurring work. I used to have, um, I'm a freelancer, so it's very kind of you to say that about, you know, about me. It's I, I feel like I'm a journeyman. It's like wherever there's, have, uh, you know, have uh, BB Edit will travel is kind of my thing. Whoever will publish me <laughs> is great, but I have more and more standing gigs now. So there's less and less time for me to pitch publications like ours or Boing Boing or some of the other folks I've written for over the years. And you also yeah. write for the Seattle Times. Is that the correct name? Yes. So, it's yeah. uh, it's an actual print newspaper. It's an amazing thing. It's a, it's great. It's a family-owned paper. So they keep pumping it out and they manage to, um, to do interesting, important, socially relevant work because the family doesn't care about, you know, they'll invest millions of dollars into multi-year research projects that benefit the public good. So, that's nice. I actually, Jeff Carlson, another tidbits writer and myself, we alternate a column every few weeks and we have one of the last print, maybe the last, except for Bob Levitis, who predates us, uh, print 
Macintosh column in the United States, in the world. I don't know if there's Mac columns in newspapers elsewhere, but um, we started it in – I started it in 2000. Jeff came on uh, to help out when I had my first child, and we started alternating after that. So we've been – two of us have been writing it for 12 years now every other week. You know, we've got to get Jeff on here. He's another just super guy. I met him uh, last year at MCE and uh, just a wonderful person. And I've talked about photography. He's been working on iPad photography and writing books about camera models. And um, he's a he's uh, if you can make a living at photography, which only a very few people can. I fear he would leave the words behind and become a photographer because he's got a great eye. He's a great shooter. And um, so he gets that creative expression out by writing books about iPad <laughs> photography and cameras and so forth. You're going to see great examples of his work in his books. Yeah. And if memory serves, Jeff also does some really great stuff with iMovie. That's uh, right. He's got a lot of really good multimedia skills, but um, he's a very fine writer and that's where the money is. You know, it's the, it's the Dillinger thing, right? Is uh, why are we writing for magazines and other publications? Cause that's where the money is. Yeah. Have to make a living <laughs> somehow. And speaking of magazines, you've you've recently got a new gig. You are, and, and correct me if I have the title wrong, but but you are now the the full time or the editor for the magazine for geeks like us, Marco Arment's new project, right? Yeah, this is um, Marco. When I talked about titles, is I'm the executive editor and he's the editorial director. Even though there's just two of us, and I'm part time, and actually he's part time on it too. He's still got Instapaper and other projects up his sleeve. But it's it's a great idea. Is that he launched it, and um, he's the perfect person to be sort of a publisher editorial director. And, you know, who knows where this is all going to go in terms of anything beyond this one publication. But Marco is interested in interesting writing. He doesn't really want to prescribe what people write about. He wants to find people who have interesting things to say and put that in front of people who are looking for the kinds of stuff that you can that you could find in, you know, like the Atlantic or New Yorker or Harper's publications like that, but that are aimed at a more technical audience because um, even those publications, online sites, have a better tech focus, but I think he would like to find stories that are, you know, personal, direct, have humanity behind them, but relate to people who really have a love of technology. So we're having a great time reading pitches and soliciting articles from people and trying to find the right balance. Um, And our editorial hole is we have four or five slots to fill every two weeks. So it's not very big. So the challenge is uh, to balance all the stuff that's coming in and what we think we need for a given issue. And um, it's a lot of fun to, uh, to have a budget to pay writers. It's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, it really is a fantastic new way of looking at a periodical. I I mean, I, I felt that, that way and to some extent, you know, with the stuff I'm doing in self-publishing with a lot of the people out there are, are really breaking the mold. And I think it's fantastic. I think publishing is the first place this is happening before movies and before some of the other media out there, uh, this is a place where people who create content can have an opportunity to really do something on their own. And, well, uh, and Marco's in a great position because he's a programmer. He can bypass the maybe tens of thousands of dollars you might have to pay to contract someone to build the app he built. You know, he built the back end content management system. He built the front end app. He knows how to get it in the eyes. Uh, the uh, uh, iTunes store, the, sorry, the app store, and all the things that I think would be tricky for a new publication. So he doesn't need startup money. Um, he just needs his own time. And then, you know, I've come on under contract to work on the editorial part once he'd ramped up to a point that he has enough subscriptions that it's, a, you know, it's a going proposition. And then we'll see what happens if the subscriptions continue or grow further. We can do, you know, more interesting things. We might pay people more. We might go weekly. There's a lot of opportunities there 
Um, but it's just this nice model where we're not doing any e-commerce. Apple does all that. We don't, you know, there's no yeah. confusing distribution or tech support really. There's an app and um, some people are, are unhappy that they can't get it in more places. And I think that's the challenge. The next challenge is to go beyond iOS 6. Um, but that's in Marco's, in Marco's department. I don't have to program on this. Yeah, but it, it really is uh, revolutionary in, in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, a sign of things to come, which is fantastic. Yeah. You know, the thing that well, the, the the magazine brings, Katie, just give me one second and I'll okay. turn over to you, is, is you know, we, I, you know, I'm not really friends with Marco. Him and I exchange emails occasionally. He's done an interview on a show like, like you have. Um, I don't think I've ever even been in the same room as Marco. But <laughs> having listened to all of his podcasts he did with Dan and – you know, watched him on his journey. I just trust his taste. And I just think he brings something to the table that, that goes beyond mere programming. I think he's just really nailed it with this thing. If anybody listening hasn't checked it out yet, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Go, go get yourself uh, subscribed to the magazine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's um, so, he's got great, he's got great taste. I agree. Well, Glenn, tell us, tell us a little bit about how you do all of this stuff that you do being independent and freelance. And do you actually go to an office and rent office space every day and do this? Or do you work out of your house? And tell us a little bit about the setup that you have. That is a great question. I know one of the things we're going to talk about is workflow and where I work is a good question. You know, for years, uh, I've had um, space that I rented with other people, including Jeff Carlson. And um, from, I think, about 97 to 2011, I was in some office, usually we like a period of three years or in one place, six years, where um, we had enough offices with doors that closed. We were one office, uh, one space where there were six different offices with doors that closed. So we could have six of us in these spaces be able to close to make phone calls or to focus on work and with some common rooms. So I shared space uh, across all these periods of time with a bunch of other uh, writers, a lot of people who um, I think were better known in the desktop publishing days. They've moved on to other things like Oli Kvern and uh, Steve Roth, who um, Steve Roth was the first person who hired me in Seattle uh, when he had a book publishing a firm that did books for Peach Pit Press. And he did, he and Oli did the first PageMaker book. And David Blattner, who is um, you know, now an InDesign guru, he was a Quark guru and shared space with him. And then, um, so we all worked together. But, uh, we, you know, over time, I think everyone found different niches for what they were doing. People got jobs, they moved further away. And we did a little bit of remodeling in my house, not very much. We put a bathroom in our basement. We have uh, two boys, five and eight. And there's two adults and having one bathroom is was already becoming problematic. So we saved our pennies, put a bathroom in, and it wound up uh, freeing up so much space in the basement on uh, the daylit side that I was able to make the choice, you know, instead of paying literally thousands of dollars a year for um, office rental and bandwidth and transportation, whatever, I'd move back into the house and see how it goes. So I'm a year and three months into that experiment and I have not lost my mind yet. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I have to work to get out of the house. There are days when I spend, I think too much time here, but, uh, but it's turned out to be a, a good environment. Do you find sometimes that, uh, you need to leave to get work done or is it just, you just need to get out and cure your cabin fever, cabin fever more. I, I can get, I could probably, it's a terrible thing. I can get very focused. I could probably sit here and work every hour and never leave the house which would be a terrible thing. So I have to motivate myself. And sometimes it's just like, I haven't seen anybody but my family for, you know, two days, uh, you know, or besides walking out to the porch to get to the, get the mail and I'll go off to a coffee shop. And um, uh, sometimes I've just got so much going on that I can't, I feel like I can't take the time to like get in a car or walk somewhere. I'm, I'm in a residential neighborhood with the library and coffee shop nearby and I'm not far from anything, but uh, it's, it's a little silly how often I, 
have to say, oh, I really need to just get out of the house, see other human beings, be around other people and bring a laptop with me to get work done someplace else. It's funny because I, I work in an office and when I have something that's really needs to get done, I go home or I go to Pete's Coffee or somewhere where I'm anonymous. I mean, my family knows when I've got my head down, they'll stay out of my way. <laughs> my kids are older. So, you know, and you'll find as your kids get older, it gets easier. But yeah, that was I, the key thing is my kids were at home. Um, they were little day, they did some daycare. And as they got older, we had a point where kindergarten was coming for my younger son. I thought, you know, and he was in daycare three days a week. And I'm like, you know, this will work. I can be in the basement. And on the days that he's home or out and about, then I'll, um, you know, I can work on that. But yeah, it was the, in the basement, um, with very bad sound transmission between the floors. So thundering children and work were not too compatible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think that's really the way to go. Frankly, if, if my business was in a, in a way that I could just work at home all the time, I probably would, but I know a lot of people try it and they can't pull it off. I think it seems like a lot of time it's distractions at home that get in the way. Well, people talk about the discipline of it too. And I, it's funny. I feel like I'm better with fewer distractions, but I also, I can put some headphones on and work almost anywhere on certain kinds of things. What I really need is multiple monitors. That's, that's the thing. And so when I leave the house, I feel like sometimes half my brain has been cut off because I've just got the one screen with me. Okay. Let's talk about that. Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got. So the, when when you're at home, how how is everything set up, and and what are you running on those on those multiple monitors? Are you running Mac Pros or or an iMac with dual monitors? Or yeah, it's a, a, I got a funny a history of that or? too. That's good. I had an I had a Mac at a a Cube a G4 Cube for a while, which I really loved because it was so quiet. Oh, those were great. And yeah, and I used that for years and kept upgrading, and and then eventually the video card. I had a new video card in it, and it sort of started to fritz out. So I. Sold the and, cube. and when you say you were upgrading a G4 or cube, that's impressive because in order to do that, you have to disassemble it completely. Is the, I don't I remember putting more memory and a hard drive in it, and maybe replacing the optical drive without it being horrible, without any soldering. So maybe I have a maybe I have rosy colored memories of it. I replaced the video card, which was not that hard to swap out on it, but um, the new video card because I think at that time there was some acceleration in I don't know what it was ten dot two or something and. Uh, if you didn't have the new video card, it ran much more slowly. Uh, it would offload to GPU some tasks. Um, but so I, what did I go from the, I think I went from the cube. I had to get a tower at that point. At some points I had a laptop, but, um, I had a, a Mac Pro from 2007 until last year. And then it decided to fight with me over Lion, even though it was, it was one of the earliest machines that was in the system requirements for Lion. But it should have run. I saw no reports anywhere there were problems, and I could not get it to take Lion. And I would install it. It would crash. At one point, it turned out one of the hard drives, I think a new hard drive I put in, had gone bad, but it wasn't reporting itself as bad. But once I ran, you know, this square or something, it said, no, this has got faulty sectors. I got the drive replaced. And, you know, I finally had to give up. I had to get work done, and I could not. I needed to use Lion for work I was doing at the time. So I've got an Apple store about um, a five-minute drive away. I went up there. Bought a stock Mac Mini, um, put uh, more memory in, and you know got the the maximum I think eight gigs in there with the uh, the 2011 model where you could just you know unscrew the bottom, stick memory in, and uh, when you look at the spec mark and other numbers, the 2011 Mac Mini I bought is not that far off in power from the 2007 Mac Pro. Is that a quad core? And um, I had the same amount of memory in both, so it didn't seem like that much of a transition, and it ran line fine, it ran mountain line fine. Now, the funny story about my Mac Pro is after all that trouble, several months later, they kept, you know, Apple kept releasing 10.7.1, 10.7.2. 
10.7.2 comes out and they put a lot of fixes in for various things. I thought, you know, I'm going to try it again. I do a clean install. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I needed to update. I needed a newer machine in any case, newer architecture and whatever. And so uh, Rich Siegel of Bare Bones bought my, for a very, very, very inexpensive price uh, and a lot of shipping, I sent the 60-pound 2007 Mac Pro out to him. And I, I don't know what he's doing with it. Propping up a door. It's gone. I know. Well, he. I don't know if he just liked it. It's a lot of aluminum. You might be able to make money recycling the frame. Yeah, just melt it down, sell it for scrap. God, is that like heavy. a battleship? That's the funny part. <laughs> Sixty pound computer. You had to weigh it to ship it. Versus my, I don't know, was four pound Mac Mini, and that's a great. You know, in the, in the Mac Pro cost. I don't know what I spent. Four thousand dollars with all the upgrades I put in it, and the Mini was maybe twelve hundred. The version I got, or a thousand dollars, I think. Yeah, us nerds, we have this habit, especially the ones that were around when there were 4K machines, of thinking we need the the biggest and baddest computers. And when in reality, at least for me, I don't. Um, although I have to admit, I I am um, I ponied up and bought this Retina MacBook Pro, and I can't stop looking at the screen. It's dangerous, dangerous. Now you never can go back. I, I have this theory that Apple, it's they can they're reprogramming our brains, right? They change our expectations for smartphones. Then they give us retina. And once you've used a retina for a bit, they've reprogrammed our, us to think non-retina displays look bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's worked for me. The iPad mini is a good case. I mean, it's a great yeah. little device that's light. Every time I look at the screen and every time, because I mainly read on these things, I look at the text. I, I can't, I just can't get over it. It's been, what, a month now. I still I still think about the fact that it's not retina every time I look at it. It's so funny. I have an iPad 2, which I kept because I did not want to I, – I didn't – thought an iPad 3 was not enough of an upgrade for me, and I don't use it that much. I use it mostly for testing and, and reading, and it's fine. I, like, I don't even want to look at an iPad 3 or 4 because I don't want to be spoiled. Yeah, don't go there. Yeah, see, so you're the kind of person that wasn't disappointed when the when the fourth generation iPad came out. Yeah, I, I skipped it. I didn't think the three was enough of an upgrade in the first place. And I think, as Apple does, they were. I mean, they kept the iPad two in there. So people who felt like the iPad three, uh, if they really wanted the Retina, they could do it. Um, but without the higher performance, it didn't seem worthwhile. And the iPad four, you know, I don't, I don't need what it offers compared to what I use my iPad uh, now for. But the fact that it's the same price as the original iPad. Uh, two and a half years ago means that anyone buying a new one now gets, you know, a relatively great bargain and they get a super fast thing and, and they won't be unhappy if they didn't buy an iPad three that it changed so fast. Yeah, I, I would disagree right. with you though. I, I think that that retina screen is a significant upgrade. It's yeah. It's, oh, it's a I don't mean to. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. mean to downplay it. I mean more that for my uses, I don't spend enough time with it. Um, and the, you know, the size of text I use and everything else Without having spent time with it, I'm not bugged by the iPad 2. If I spent time with gotcha. an iPad 3 or 4, I would now be ruined and I'd be saying, oh, yeah, I got to get it. I can't look yeah, at this it, thing. It would wreck you. Jagged edges or pixels the size of fingernails. Forget it. <laughs> I know. I mean, it looks like, you know, it looks to me like Pong, Pong style graphics now. I don't know. <laughs> I'm ruined, you know. Anyway. So while you're running off of this, you know, turbo super fancy Mac mini that you got there, um, what kind of apps are you running? I mean, because you mentioned that you really didn't need all the horsepower that that comes with a a MacBook, uh, you know, the Mac Pro that you had. And I think that's probably the case for most of us. I've I've got a Mac mini and I I love it. I think it's a great machine. And and my MacBook Air is is my primary machine, which is by no means a a high horsepower machine. Uh, What what apps are you living in every day to to do what you do? I'm a BB Edit user um, and I am relatively recently a serious one. I've used it probably for most of its history in some form or another, 
but it's only in the last few years that I started to write in it. We at Tidbits, we decided to go to Markdown format as our native uh, uh, publication format for our content management system. And when we did that, it made sense to be writing in text. And of course, what's the best text editor, you know, in whatever this was, 2007 or something or six, it made sense to write everything in BB Edit. We were a big, nicest writer uh, publication for a long time. Uh, there were, uh, I think Tidbits was almost founded on nicest because of macros. And there were a lot of publishing things and editing things that um, uh, I never got into because I wasn't doing as much on the editing side at that point, but it was all nicest writer. And then BB Edit was the right switch up for us when we switched to Markdown format because it previews Markdown or it has for a couple versions now, but it also integrates nicely. We use, um, for Tibbets, we use SVN uh, subversion for version control and BB Edit has direct uh, SVN support as well. So we can be writing there. We can publish into our CMS by committing articles into the version repository. And, um, you know, I, w- I wanted writing a book about BB Edit. I wrote a uh, Take Control of BB Edit. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you about that. So I just linked that. If you're listening, go check out. This is a really good book. Um, I, I'm a, we talk about writing a lot on the show because Katie and I are both lawyers, you know, and words are business. And frankly, a lot of the people we talk to are writers in one capacity or another. And we're way ahead on the idea of text only and getting away from Microsoft word and, you know, simplifying your writing. Um, but one thing I've never been able to do is find a justification for using something like BB edit to write text. I mean, I don't write code for websites and I don't write Xcode, uh, but I use, I do write Markdown all day. And I find the simpler text editors, like the one I generally use is Byword, but there's a bunch of them, um, is good enough. But you know, what, what is the case for using something more powerful like BB edit for your type of writing? Well, I'll say part of it is I do some programming too. So it's NHTML coding. So, uh, I don't do a ton of that in any given day, but I'm going to use BB edit for that. You know, there's people I I've tried Coda too, and I have, it's a very powerful program. It does not work exactly the way I think. So I'm still working my head around using Coda two in my workflow, but when I'm doing any kind of text editing for, uh, you know, programming or coding, um, I'm already in that environment. So I just kept along with that. So for people who are coming at it from a pure writing standpoint, um, BB Edit or Text Wrangler, which has most of BB Edit's features uh, and is free, can sometimes seem like overkill. But I think the thing that I like most is it mostly gets out of the way, but it has neat features like autocomplete. So you can be typing along and it'll suggest the endings of words you're typing after a short delay. It has a uh, very interesting uh, spell checking software that I, I find better to use than it's fast and also better to use than a lot of other software for spell checking. Um, it has Markdown. Well, stop right there oh, real yeah. quick. So how is it better? I don't, I, I just don't know. Well, I'm trying to think about, you can check all misspelled words at once. And I just like the way it integrates. It's integrated with the dictionary. So I can right click a word and look up a dictionary entry. Um, it has a huge dictionary built in and uses the OS 10 dictionary. So it marks, uh, I think it's better about what it marks as misspelled versus not because it has a broader dictionary and this autocomplete thing ties in. So instead of misspelling something, I'm typing, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Melios, uh, th- what's the, what's the word? You're a lawyer. So maybe you know about this. No, the, uh, what's the mesothelium. Uh, yes, exactly. You start to type. All right. I'm sorry. I know you see the, the ads all over the internet for people, uh, threatening or helping. Yeah, we don't sue. do that. Good. Thank goodness. But, um, but so you start typing meso, you know, and like, I don't remember how to spell that word. Like there's words I can spell idiosyncratic or, you know, tamesis or whatever, but I don't remember how to spell that word. I don't have to spell it that often. I start typing it. It gives me the autocomplete on that. Um, it has this feature called, uh, well, it has both text clippings 
and text factories. And I like both of those. The clippings, I mean, it's interesting to use BB Edit alongside uh, Text Expander because Text Expander does macro and substitution and insertion. And BB Edit has an overlap, but it's not a perfect overlap. So sometimes I'm using Text Expander partly because I can use Text Expander in multiple different programs, of course. And sometimes I'm using built-in features in BB Edit where it'll select text, it'll it'll take a selection you have, substitute it, drop something in, perform an operation. Uh, and the text factories feature that I really like, you can string together a whole bunch of text operations into a, something like a macro, but you could do sort and find and replace and regular expression pattern matching and do something very powerful that you do routinely. Like at Tidbits, we have a, a routine that uh, fixes long dashes, the spaces around long dashes and uh, puts in curly quotes for our um, publication before we go, you know, before we publish it to the web. So it's got power under the hood, and some of it's more complicated than others. But I, I find myself using those features all the time. Yeah, it, it really is. I, I get that, and uh, you know, it's like a lot of people were doing that with TextMate for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about BB Edit, I always felt like I met Rich Siegel at MacWorld a long time ago, and he's just. One of those guys, when you meet him, he's just the nicest guy, but he's just like so much under the hood. I mean, the guy's really smart and yes. he he's, he's the kind of developer that you want to support because he made this great product. Um, it's not a big corporate product. You know, you don't have this huge stockholder company dictating what's going to happen. You've got a couple passionate people constantly making it better and they've got staying power. You know that if you invest time in BB at it, that you're going to be able to use it in another 10 years. And I don't know if there's any other app I can say that about in that space. I think it's 20, it has celebrated its 20th year this year, I believe. Yeah. Too. And, and it's fun to look back and see, I mean, so much of it's fundamentally the same. It's just, I think it's a, it's funny. So when you come at it from the programming standpoint, you like to see line numbers. You like to see a character count and row count, all these kind of fiddly things. You can turn all that off or you can, use it to, even when I'm doing normal writing, I can use it to sort of keep that running total of what's going on. Um, I should also point out the regular expression pattern matching, you know, it's got all these different ways to do find and replace. And, uh, you know, you flip the grep button, which is, I think, unapproachable to a lot of people. Uh, If you're a programmer, it's very exciting because you can use all the power there. And I wrote part of the book. I have a, like, eight pages on, like, recipes and how to understand grep and how to use regex because it's so powerful for routine activities and you don't need to know that much about it, but it's um, daunting to learn. I think, you know, I just, I just pushed the button, Glenn. I, I bought your book. <laughs> you I, I'm going to read it now. Yeah. I'll tell you what happened is I started getting really serious about moving to one of these more powerful tools. And then Brett Terpstra, uh, I don't know if you know who he is. He's just a really smart guy. Mm. And, uh, uh, he does a lot of really interesting stuff. He wrote these markdown service tools, which brought uh. a bunch of that, um, brought a bunch of that regular expression type whiz bang to any text editor and just, and he uh, basically buried them in services. So you just right tap on any series of words and that's you can great. automatically add stuff. So that, that's what, you know, and that was enough for me, but now you have piqued my curiosity. So I'm going to be looking at BB edit. Well, it's a perfect compliment with um, any kind of formatted coding you're doing in text because it's got these terrific built in previews and you can even create, uh, CSS style sheets, you can plop them in the application support folder for it. And then in the preview, you can choose among CSS style sheets to look at what an HTML document would look like with the different styles applied. And it's just got a lot of very interesting management and handy features. But I find that's why I wrote the book in part was there's 
it's not inaccessible and it rewards you, but it's just hard to find if you're not in the programmer mentality. It's hard to to break your way into these different areas to start, um, you know, being able to to use it, to get enough knowledge to be able to use it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So do you do all of your writing now in BB Edit? Wow, pretty much, I think. I I hate writing anything else right now. I do some in pages. I just don't need to do much that's formatted. I mean, that's kind of the, the weird thing is I started um, writing web pages in 1994. Well, I started as a typesetter. My background is with optical digital typesetting systems um, that were around the 1970s and 80s. And I got trained in high school where we had um, some of this gear and uh, it was like writing, it was a form of SGML. These uh, CompuGraphics graphic systems used something that was like SGML. So when the web came around years later, I'm like, I know this, this is like a variant on the exactly even used angle brackets and everything. So um, I had had this experience for years. It's how partly how I put myself through. Well, since I put myself through college, my parents helped, my grandparents helped the school gave me financial aid. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to down downplay my parents. Well, um, but uh, you know, for my, the money I need to make for my part, I typeset. And um, uh, so, you know, when I, when the web came around, I started a web company in 94 doing web development and hosting. And it just seemed very natural. It's like, oh yeah, I know how to do formatted, you know, structured formatted language stuff. I'm used to typesetting. I know how to do, I was trained as a, got a degree in graphic design. And I was thinking, well, someday we'll be lucky enough that we get WYSIWYG tools and we don't have to do any of this coding anymore. Like I'm sort of tired of the coding. I'm going to do visual work. It's computers should help us with that. And tools arose, right? If you remember go live and, um, Oh, there was a Adobe program. I loved what was that called in the late nineties? Um, Oh, I can't remember. It was a very simple HTML editor that actually did pretty much what it was supposed to do before they acquired go live and, you know, Dreamweaver, which is still around. You have all these programs. And I feel like, in the end, I was like, oh, all these programs, they make such terrible code in the end, and they're so hard to manage that I went back at least a decade ago, I started writing code again. You know, So I write yeah. all my HTML from scratch just about and use a lot of templates now so I don't have to reuse as much code. Um, you know, I write my program, I do my programming in it. So, so much of what I do just makes sense to be in that environment. Yeah. So but in terms of your just your writing text, so you're writing a markdown uh, yeah, because nobody asked me for formatted text. I mean, all, like uh, yeah. the Economist has a has a CMS a content management system that um, I can paste in uh, either rich text, which I don't like, or HTML. Boing Boing has you know uses WordPress. At um, Tidbits, we we use as I said, a Markdown as a native format. Uh, I can't think who else I write for where I have to paste in uh, the and magazine. Macworld uses Markdown too. Yeah, I give them Markdown. Yeah, I don't have access to their CMS, but I but they uh, can plug my stuff right in there. And uh, Marco chose Markdown as the native format. Uh, extended Markdown. So, some you know, a little bad blood there. No, <laughs> John Gruber has no truck with extended Markdown, enhanced Markdown. Uh, he needs to still challenge the John Gruber. He needs to update Markdown for the 21st century. Uh, well, what I think that what happened there is that, you know, he made a great tool for writing for the web. And there's a lot of us who don't write for the web who want to use it for other stuff. Exactly. And extensions are hard. I mean, it's just, the fundamental spec is terrific. Um, but that's why I think so many people I work with have adopted it. It's very funny. So I, I don't need to write with rich text, which is fantastic. So I use pages when I do. And I um, actually, for the Seattle Times, I send them Word files, even though it's not formatted text. But that's what they want. But their, their CMS is changing as well. Um, but it's neat for me that I can write in text in a format that I can preview 
and then with you know URLs and HTML or whatever I need using Markdown or raw HTML if I need to, and then just uh, send it off. Yeah. I have such a simple workflow. Isn't that terrible? Uh, you should ask me about, let's see, what's the, what's the area that's actually really complicated for me? It's, uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, a point to make, though, is that you have a couple tools and you use the heck out of them. I mean, so much with BB Edit that you wrote a book about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a crazy. So Rich Siegel is a buddy of mine. This is not why I use this software. I use the software because it's good, but it is sort of funny. So I have to say that because I use, it seems like I'm obsessed by him and his company. So I use Yojimbo for organizing all my miscellaneous nonsense. I, I'm constantly in Yojimbo. Like my bank, uh, my credit union lets you scan checks like so many do. So I scan them and I put the receipt they give me that's an image. I throw that into Yojimbo and then I delete them after, you know, 60 days. I, when I need a web page, I throw that in Yojimbo. I, you know, I try to Evernote. It doesn't work exactly. It's more flexible and it's multi-platform, but it doesn't work exactly the way I think. And I'm a MailSmith user, which is now a, a free product. It was a commercial product from, from Bare Bones for a while, and they continue to support it, uh, Rich does sort of in his spare time. Um, and it's a text-only email program, and I love it. I don't like – I've tried every other email program out there, and I like just dealing with text. I don't like having to deal with HTML email. There's almost never anything worthwhile to see in the rich version of it. Now, do you find well, – You missed all the Black Friday ads, Glenn. Exactly. Well, there's now here's the nice thing. Mail, Mailsmith has a little button – so you get a text mail that has an HTML version encoded in it. You hit the button and it loads it in a browser. And so I can oh. see it if I really have to. I can see an HTML email. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Well, as, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more. Go ahead, go ahead David. Well, I was gonna I was gonna take a quick break, but but you go ahead and finish this thought, and we'll do that then. I'll just. It's funny. I I send text plain mail is plain text every chance I can because it's just so much easier. Uh, but anyway, listen, I think we've gone along. We should probably talk about our first sponsor today. Yeah, let's talk about our first sponsor, who is our exclusive sponsor for this episode. And that is our, our good friends at Smile, who are big friends of yours, Glenn. And it it sounds like it's a, a good time to talk about Text Expander then, since we're talking all about text. Yeah, and, absolutely. And Text Expander, the, the basic concept of Text Expander, for the few people out there who are not aware is you, you save your fingers, you save your keyboard strokes, because what Text Expander does is it lets you set up all of these Text Expander snippets that you can access with just a few keystrokes. And you can set these up to type in uh, commonly used phrases. You can type them, use them to set up boilerplate language. You can use them to set up email signatures. But then they get really, really powerful and go from there. So beyond just extant, expanding you know, plain text, you can do, and, and what's great about Text Expander 4 is they've really expanded these capabilities, these amazing fill-in forms. So you can do fill-in-the-blank forms where you can have blanks that you can type any bit of text in, or you can have blanks where you can choose drop-down menus, or you can have blanks where you can choose from a couple of different options depending on what you're sending. Maybe you're sending something where it's either this or this, and you can choose the block of text that works best for you. The options are really limitless. And then if you want to get even more geeky with Text Expander, you can insert code into your Text Expander snippets, and it will do math and equations and figure out the date and the time. And and even, you know, if you get someone like Brett Terpstra involved, I mean, it will it will pull in chunks of text from the web, and it will execute code and AppleScript, and just absolutely amazing things. Yeah, you know, they really have upped the game. They're at version four now, and some of the custom 
tricks you can do without having to be a super programmer are really fantastic. Like you can set the location of the cursor at the end of the snippet. So um, if you want to write a snippet, but leave some place in the middle where you want to type in uh, an item number or something like that, you could have a fill in form or you could have a build the snippet and then place the cursor right in the middle of the snippet. So you can just continue from right there. Um, one of my favorites I use is whenever I get a call from a client, it's called dot TCO, you know, period TCO in lowercase. And it puts in a, a full on date and timestamp, you know, with year hyphen month hyphen date. And you can put the leading zeros in. It lets you set that. Then the time and it says telephone call from client. So then I've got a little NV alt file open for every case. And I can just take a quick note of when I talk to somebody about that. I get off the phone with the client dot TCO fills all that stuff in for me, date stamps it. And then I can just type a few notes and I'm done. And little things like that save me time every day. Glenn, Glenn, how do you use it? I use it in conjunction with a lot of other things. So I use it primarily. Um, I never type uh, a date or time like, like you have, I've got shortcuts for that. I never type my name. I use a shortcut. I never type my address, my phone number, any of those things. I Sometimes I think I don't even remember where I live because I have a shortcut for it or I type it in. I don't type my credit card. I trust, you know, they sync via Dropbox. So I've got a credit card number stored in there and I lock my machines down. So I have a shortcut where I can just type that and have it fill in a form. Uh, so I'm, I have not gotten to the fill in forms yet. I hear from uh, my friend Michael Cohen, another tidbitter who has uh, written a book about Text Expander, in fact, that um, Smile People sell directly from their store. Um, it's another Take Control book. Uh, he swears by them, and then wrote some very fun Mad Libsy kinds of things uh, on the Tidbits mailing list about how you might use it. But uh, I've got to get into that feature because that's um, that's another another thing. But t- Text Expander is one of, I think, five utilities that I'm in constant use on throughout the day. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's amazing. They, they just keep upping the game. And this is the reason why I like supporting developers that, you know, charge for their software and continue to support it and develop it because it just keeps getting better and better. Uh, Text Expander not only works on the Mac, you can also get Text Expander Touch on your iOS devices. So once you build your snippets, as Glenn was saying, it'll sync them all through Dropbox so you can use them anywhere you want. In fact, they just we just talked about recently, they added Text Expander Touch support to OmniFocus on the iOS. So now when I'm on my iPad, I can just hit a few buttons and bam, I've got my text expander snippets in there for creating tasks. I'm like you, Glenn. This app is essential to me. I use it all the time. I can't stop talking about it. If you're listening and you've already bought it and you already know how great it is, go tell somebody about it because uh, there's going to be non-nerd people in your life that can really benefit from this as well. So yeah. should I tell you my other four? I have four other utilities that are must-haves. All right, let's hear it. Workflow. So I uh, launch a bar. I use LaunchBar. I forget it exists when I um, set up a new machine or have to restore from something. It's like there's something missing, and I'm like, oh, I have to install LaunchBar. It's not part of the system. Yeah, yeah. you figure that out pretty quick. Why is this not working? It's, it's, yeah. it's in the wrong default folder. I is you know That saves me a million hours, too. Yeah, default folder X. Excellent program. One password. Um, I'm, yeah. I know people. some people like LastPass, and there are other alternatives, too. I've used 1Password across all my devices and systems, and... Um, it's again, the combination and then the Ojimbo I talked about before. So between all those things, I'm on a website and I can, sometimes I use text expander to fill in something. Sometimes I use one passwords identity feature to fill in my information. Sometimes I need to go to Ojimbo and find something I have stored there and copy and paste it in, um, or, you know, print something from the web page to there. So I think those five programs 
utilities are um, they're just invaluable because I use them so seamlessly. I don't even remember they exist because it's just something I rely on and have to use. Well, I was going to scold you earlier because you're telling me you're putting your credit card number in text expander. And I, that makes me uncomfortable. Frankly, <laughs> I'm probably because, foolhardy. Yeah. And I was going to say, well, you should go get one password. And now you're telling me you already have it. Yeah, I should, well, but I'm lazy. I don't want to use, I want to have, um, I know I could set it up there. I like the, I like being able to, um, text expander works in places that one password doesn't always recognize the form. So I can stick my cursor on a location that tech, uh, one password wouldn't fill in and, and type it in. It's probably a risk, but you know, I have, um, I've got file vault two on my laptop and it locks pretty quickly and someone would have to know it was in there. And, um, on my home machine, I suppose I should be a little more careful too, but I'm using Dropbox. The files are encrypted. They, I just added, turned on uh, two factor authentication was just added to Dropbox. So I'm yeah. up to the, yeah. up the encryption there. And, um, now that you say that now I need to remove my credit card from <laughs> X expander and put it into one password. So it's safer. I should be doing that. I think, I think I've been some things, you know, how you've been doing for so many years, you forget yeah. that you're doing it until you say it to someone like you and you say, wait a minute, is that such a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're for, not saying, you know, yeah, for me, I work in an office. So I like my laptop sitting on my desk when I go to lunch <laughs> exactly. and, yeah, text expander is not that hard to get into those things. Yeah, text expander yeah. is the great, it's the successor to quick keys, which I used very happily for many years back in the OS, you know, six, seven, eight, nine days, and you could do menus and so forth. And OS 10 sort of broke a lot of the ways in which you could script the system. And I feel like Text Expander has gradually been getting its hooks in deeper and deeper. And the Apple script integration of a long time ago certainly helped there too. I mean, I use um, Text Expander. One of the things I use it for is uh, if I've got a login account at like Bitly or one of the shortening services, instead of um, before Twitter offered this, or even now if I want to bypass Twitter, I use an Apple script that comes with uh, Text Expander to do a, a URL request that shortens the URL that's in the clipboard. And that's uh, it's, awfully nifty. It's great. And even like going back to the earlier discussion, I've got a bunch of Markdown Text Expander snippets that create reference links and do all those all sorts of weird stuff because it'll take the clipboard. You can just copy, you know, get, go in Safari, hit Command L, Command C, you've copied the link. And then you can fire off a text expander snippet and it will use the contents of the clipboard for the reference link. It's, it's all very tricky. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, now let's talk about Yojimbo a little while because that's an app. We, that yeah. That's one we haven't talked about much on, on this show. We've talked extensively about some of the other ones, but um, we've talked a lot about Evernote, which I know is, is, is kind of a similar concept as in an, I think, I think because I've used Yojimbo some, but it's been several years. Isn't Yojimbo kind of the same concept as in an everything bucket, but it's implemented differently? It is. I think it's tell got, us about that. It's got a little more flexibility. I want to say that that um, I used Evernote for a bit, and I found I had to sort of work my way around to thinking the way Evernote did, like how I clipped things and put it in there. I think Evernote's big advantage is it's multi-platform, and they've integrated. You know, there's web, there's uh, there's apps for desktop, there's apps for mobile. And Barebones is a smaller company, and they had some. They have a Yojimbo know, app that came out, but they had um, syncing issues. And then there's the iCloud changeover. They're still working through issues, unfortunately, months later to get the um, iCloud integration working because that's the missing piece. They'd used MobileMe for a long time, which uh, you know, lots of problems as in many services that use MobileMe. So uh, I like it, and I you know I can't gain access to the material on the go is my big problem right now, and I'm waiting for them to uh to make that happen but on my on the desktop it's just the place where i file uh any kind of research i'm working on urls um snippets photos 
serial numbers, like all the nonsense, all the detritus, and then all the secure stuff I need. Like, I mean, I can encrypt things that are in your Jimbo also one at a time. Uh, and uh, anything that I need that's password related uh, or account related, I store in one password. So the two of those together for me are a great, um, a great compliment. I feel like one password is weak at, and it's not intended to be for sort of general stuff and even things like serial numbers. I don't feel like one password is necessarily the best place to put those. But Yojimbo, in terms of passwords, it can't fill in web pages, so I wouldn't want to do that. I want to have those stored in uh, story one password. Yeah, it, it's interesting, this need for an everything bucket. And I've always been kind of against them. To tell you the truth, I'm kind of coming around on Evernote just because it's just so easy to put stuff there and find it in other places. Mm-hmm. But um, Yojimbo, I always felt like those were the guys who basically made you know mobile me and all this stuff work to begin with. I mean, they're the first people to throw a lot of data at that database. And I almost feel like Apple should have been sending them checks for everything <laughs> they were figuring out. That's true. It's, it's a, you know, it's a tricky, I think it's a tricky thing is, is uh, iCloud is certainly still an ongoing problem for companies, even ones that had a lot of time to migrate off mobile me or want to take advantage for the first time of using a cloud sync service. And that's really why Dropbox is uh have made such inroads, even though it doesn't offer, you know, it's really kind of in some ways a dumb bucket and that works better in some cases than the smarts that Apple's built in the iCloud because iCloud is a service and it's got multiple kinds of things programmers can do, but it's not a generic file store. Dropbox is a generic file store. and Its API treats it that way and it's, I think, more uh, easily integrated into software because it handles so much of the locking and other kinds of operations but it doesn't give you that, you know, the truth is in the cloud thing that Steve Jobs talked about. You don't always know with Dropbox, if there's conflicts, it makes conflict files. Uh, if you have the same software accessing things on multiple machines, there's more overhead for pro- programmers. But Dropbox is here. Everyone has access to free accounts if they want to. And I think compared to iCloud, which is Mac only and which has all this overhead, once you get to the App Store or the Mac App Store that you have to agree with and deal with entitlements and everything else, it winds up, I don't know, it's not really a trade-off. It's not like iCloud versus Dropbox. There's distinct differences, but it's hard, I think, for developers to um, make all the compromises they need to to use iCloud uh, effectively. Yeah, I think a lot of it's to what, you know, Apple bit off more than Dropbox did because Apple's idea is that the user doesn't have to use a file system at all, that they open an app and their files are there, and then they open a different app and the files are there, and there's never any problem. I mean, that's the ideal and it seems to me from using it that the people who are using it with moderate amounts of data are generally doing okay. But if you get anything complicated, that it, it falls apart. And that's why I'm thinking um, that Apple should be writing checks again to Rich because if he's <laughs> going to get Yojimbo working on it, he's going exactly. to he's gonna fix, fix a lot of things that need fixing. This is a funny thing is back in uh, 96, 97, I worked briefly for Amazon.com at a six-month stint there before I decided the whole – Idea was, um, I thought the idea was good. The execution was not. And I, I left without stock options and I have no regrets, let me tell you. But there was a point at which uh, uh, Amazon was doing more Oracle database transactions more rapidly than any other company in the world. And Amazon actually made Oracle's products so much better by the million bug reports they filed. And they wind up hiring a bunch of ex-Oracle people in-house because they needed so much help to keep the database uh, running. Uh, so Oracle never wrote a check to Amazon either. It probably, probably should have. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's really the power users 
or the power developers in this case that are, are going to figure this stuff out. I, I think the story's not done yet with uh, iCloud. I don't think Apple's going to give up on it. I think it's just going to get better. But I don't think there's ever going to be a time in the immediate future where you're going to say, well, iCloud's enough. I don't need Dropbox anymore. Because there's certain kinds of things that just don't really lend themselves to it. The example I always use is PDFs. I use uh, PDF apps from from Smile, basically on my iOS and my Mac, but then I use uh, Adobe on a PC at work. Uh, iCloud won't solve my problem exactly for me because I need to get to that data. And um, collaboration is, I mean, Dropbox. The reason I started using it is because I needed to exchange files and not deal with sync with a bunch of other people. And uh, we, you know, we were using like remote Apple Share file protocol server and AFP server for tidbits for a while. And we had to create folders to check stuff in and out. And we're dealing with internet delays and, you know, all kinds of nonsense. And then um, when Dropbox came out, it solved every kind of file problem we had with uh, moving files for take control books and for tidbits. And then everyone I knew started to use Dropbox for collaboration. And it was like, it just, I mean, that's why it went so exponential is it's one thing to use it for your own purposes, but the minute other people, you know, use it, you have to get it. Yeah. Well, Glenn, how do you manage all of these projects that you're doing? I mean, it sounds like you you could at any given time be working on a half dozen different things and maybe have another dozen different things cooking, um, you know, kind of waiting down in the in the pipeline. Do you just juggle all this on your head or do you have some kind of system that you use or what's your secret? I think, well, right now I have a lot of recurring work, so it's actually easier to manage because I know that in a given week I need to do certain things. In the past, I often had, and even a few months ago, I had, you know, a pile. I had like, I don't know, like 15 different articles I need to write for different publications, a lot of them for Macworld, uh, and over a period of time. And so I, I do the simplest thing. I don't actually, uh, I don't do time recording. I've tried a bunch of, prod, of products that would let me keep track of the amount of time I worked on given jobs, but I work back and forth between things so much. The overhead of using those and customizing them has never proven valuable to me. I keep, I, I have Harvest, which is an online site. And now integrates with um, Trello, uh, the Trello.com from uh, Fog, from, uh, was it Fogbugs? What's the company? Yeah, uh, yeah Joel Spolsky's company, right? And uh, um, Trello is a tool that we love at Tidbits, and I, it's free. I wish they had charged so I don't want it to go away, but it sounds like they're, they're continuing development on it. Uh, but so uh, I am very poor, not about time management. I'm incredibly productive. I'm incredibly good at managing my time. And figuring out exactly how long something will take to do, but I'm very bad at tracking what I am doing at any given time. I'm in a little bit of a flurry of activity, um, and which is which is bad advice to other people, I'm sure. But it, right, you know, right now what I do is I've got um, with the magazine, I've got a structure that every two weeks we're putting out an issue, so I've got a constant stream of things coming in and out for that. For the Economist, I write two blog entries a week, so I know in any given week I don't have particular deadlines for those. Just somewhere during the week, I write two things for them. For tidbits, we have routine work that we track through Trello, and um, that's a big chunk of what I do now. And then if I have other freelance articles, I've got those in a in a pages document where I keep track of deadlines and so forth and refer to that when I'm trying to figure out what I need to do in a given week. I pull it up and make sure I've got all the all the balls in the air at the same time, and um, none of them are about to fall down behind me. Are you using any kind of task management software or just like reminders app or OmniFocus or things Nothing. or anything like that? I probably or? should. I have a, I have a, I used to have a trick memory to say I have a trick memory. I have a, a pretty great memory. It's, it's, I call it an accident of birth. It's like a birth affect. Uh, I used to have, it used to be almost photographic and unfortunately it's gotten worse. It's a bummer 
when you have a memory that you, you know, you just store stuff in it and it comes back and you don't need to work on it. As I've gotten older, it's gotten much worse. So now I have to write stuff down. It sounds like I know everyone else has to do this except those of us who have these trick memories. So uh, for a long time, I can just sort of look inward and have, it's not a memory palace, but I can remember everything I'm working on. And now I take more notes. So eventually I'm sure by the, you know, I'm 44 now, I'm sure by the time I hit 50, I'd better have some solution in place or I'm going to be dropping plates everywhere. Okay. So that's the difference between one us. Of those. Well, the difference between us, Glenn, is I realized that I can't remember anything when I was 12. So <laughs> I have over the course of my life developed a whole intricate series of hacks to a uh, manage stuff outside of my brain because I, I had no choice. So finally my advantage is kicking in. That's finally. it. That's it. Yeah. No, it's funny too, is, you know, that's, um, we were talking about jeopardy at the outset too, is, you know, there's one time in your life when being able to remember random stuff that has no importance to anyone in this universe, or the next, <laughs> the, the one time is jeopardy. The rest of the time it's like, ah, it's just, why do you know all this trivia? And my mind just accretes details. So sometimes I've had, a, I use a calendar more. I use this pages document. I think from the outside, I seem incredibly busy. And I, you know, I do have a lot of work, but it's not like, um, I work a probably 40 to 50 hour week most of the time, sometimes a bit more when I've got a book in progress and sometimes less when I've got family stuff going on, I've got appointments to take kids to or whatever. Uh, and from the outside, I bet it looks like I work 200 hours a week because I'm, I am, again, this is a, uh, you can't, I don't believe you can train yourself to do this. I am incredibly productive. My wife uh, has objectively told me that I can sit down and I can produce thousands of words. You know, this is something Stephen King has for fiction. And he's a good writer, but his ability to sit down and just churn out words is why he has, I don't know, what has he written, 120 books or something. For me, yeah. it's like sitting down and writing a thousand words. It's just not, you know, I call somebody on the phone, I do an interview, whatever, synthesize in my head. And this is something that I am lucky enough, it is a blessing of birth that my brain functions that way. And I've been encouraged my whole life uh, and been mentored by people who've who've helped me when I've come to them you know, how do I do this kind of thing? How do I write this sort of thing? Or editors have been very kind and give me the kind of feedback that's helped me grow. So uh, you can't, I, so I, it's, you know, it's that God-given talent versus trained environmental thing. And I've, I was uh, very lucky in the genetic department in terms of what came out of my brain. And, uh, and then I try to work very, very hard as a result to, to uh, make use of it. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, good for you for recognizing that. Well, I don't I mean, like to praise. You shouldn't praise. I don't think you can praise inherent things. You know, it's a care. I mean, kids, you know, it's like the, you have to be careful about when you're praising something that is simply part of who some, someone is. And it's not necessarily immutable, but it's not something they created for themselves versus I, when someone makes the effort and puts the effort out to do something. That's the thing that I think is praiseworthy. Oh, it, in my family, the stories are legendary of how stupid I was. <laughs> oh, <when> I was <laughs> no. <laughs> you showed them <laughs> clearly. I don't know about that, I but so. anyway, it, it's, uh, it is impressive. And, you know, I guess uh, let, let's take a little break and then let's talk a little bit about Jeopardy because you're, you're a celebrity now, yeah. but before we do that, let's talk a little bit more about our exclusive sponsor for the show smile. And, you know, the holidays are coming, Katie, and, uh, it's time maybe to look at smiles product that people don't think about as often. I, I heard a rumor the holidays might be coming. That's, that's true. That's really happening. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Oh, and boy. so you're, you're going to go to uh, have your turkey. We just finished your turkey, and now next you're going to be getting ready to go having your Christmas time. And yeah, I like, I like ham for, for Christmas, personally. Yeah, but, yeah, ex yeah. Exactly. And then Whatever. you're going to have those relatives who you tell them that you're putting the pictures on Dropbox, and they get this blank stare on their face. 
And frankly, they get a little angry with you because <laughs> now you're getting nerdy on them and they don't know what that means. Uh, but that's not the case. You don't need to go there. You can make them a disc. And if you're going to make them a disc, it should look pretty. And a smile has this great application called disc label, and it allows you to make uh, boxes and covers for your discs. When you put all your photographs or your video on it, uh, it's a great application. So you can, it's got templates built into it, but it also has the ability for you to import clip arts or pictures. Like you can take a picture of your Christmas tree and put it right on the disc and people are going to love it. And if you're going to take the time to uh, to put all the stuff together, why not take that extra step and label the disc uh, so people have it for the years to come? Yeah, we've been doing a lot of this the past year or so with aging relatives and family members and just trying to get some of the, these memories digitized, whether it's taking the old eight uh, with the eight millimeter film. Um, my, we, we've been cleaning out my grandparents' house and we found a lot of that and we've been um, taking that to a local place and getting it digitized to DVD, and we've we've scanned over the past year over over two thousand slides from just these amazing world travel trips that my grandparents have taken over the years. And uh, you know, at the end, what I what I got at the final product of that, which don't get me wrong, is priceless, is is just this this white round flat disc with a sharpie marker written on it, and that it's i'm i'm so happy to have it but it's 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 something that i i want to reproduce and i want to share and i want to give to my family members and the and the beauty of it being digital is you know i can now infinitely copy that and give it to every single i can give it to my siblings i can give it to my parents i can give it to my mother's brothers and sisters and instead of them getting it in a plain white paper paper you know one of those little paper jewel cases you know yeah. with with written on the sharpie marker you know china trip 1963 or whatever, uh, they're actually, we have found some amazing photos of, of my grandparents, um, you know, like their Egypt photos. I've got a picture of my grandmother on a camel. I mean, who has those? That's gorgeous. And, and you and know, the, so, the Sharpie you know, cheapens it. it, it yeah. just, you know, it's your grandparents' lives and you got a Sharpie there. I mean, do it right. So, so you can imagine which, which picture made the cover of, of the Egypt jewel case. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, and and just just finding those little gems and putting them all together. I mean, this is stuff that it doesn't take long. I mean, the hard part was getting all of this stuff out and, and digitizing them and making these discs labels with 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 disc label. Yeah, it was was just minutes and printed them out and they're done. And, and what's great about this is that they're so easy to print because I've, you know, you've seen where they come with these packages in the mail that you go by at Office Depot or something like that. And they've got the templates and they've got the software that don't even try to load that stuff on your Mac. And it just doesn't work. Well, disc label, you just tell it, okay, what do you have? I have these Avery labels, whatever, 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 or I have this set and okay, fine. Got it. These are the dimensions, stick it in your printer, done, boom. So it's thirty five ninety five. You can get a free trial, uh, but check this out. And if you're going to put some holiday photos together or like Katie, you're doing some archival photos, take the extra time, do this. Everybody in your family is going to love you for it. And like Katie said, make as many copies as you can, spread them to the four winds. So uh, when we're long gone, there'll be somebody that can hopefully see those treasured memories. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you to Smile for their continued support of, of Mac Power users. So, Glenn, in addition to being, you know, a hero of nerds, you are also a Jeopardy champion. I am a two-time Jeopardy winner. Yeah, it's such a strange thing. I, it turns out that uh, like something like 10% of the people I know know someone else who was on Jeopardy at some point 
or someone who's about to be on it. Like last night, someone I know, a Twitter friend, someone I've never met in person said, Oh, friend of mine, so and so's friend, so and so is going to be on tonight. And so I messaged that person, the, you know, two friends away from someone I know only on Twitter saying, I'm wishing you retroactive good luck since it was taped two months ago. And unfortunately, last night's show, she was squeezed between two incredibly powerful players. I mean, one really dominant player and she did quite well. But, uh, you know, once you get, there's some people on there who are Jeopardy machines and they're just a different breed. You can't, you can't challenge them. But, but you know what I like about this, Glenn, and you've done a couple of interviews about it and written, you wrote an article, I believe for, for Boing Boing about this. Um, but you really use your technology chops in preparing for it. Yeah. I read a bunch of books about, there, there are several Jeopardy books. There's Ken Jennings, the 74 time winner, Ken Jennings. Uh, he wrote a book called Brainiac that's about trivia in general. It's a great read, um, and he has some advice in there. And in fact, I called him before. Uh, I don't didn't know him, but I sent him an email and said, "Hey, you know, before I do the taping, can we meet? I'd love to get some advice." And he said, "Sure." And like people must do this all the time. He's like, "No, no one's ever actually <laughs> asked me out to coffee before." I'm like, "Oh." So it turns out, you know, the things he said in this book, the things that are out there, they're true. It's like you can only cram a certain amount. You can only practice the timer a certain amount. And some people are better at the buzzing than others. And some people get the rhythm when they're there. So it's, it's a hard game to prep for. Um, one of the books that's now at a print called prisoner of Trebekistan that came out about the same time as Ken's book. Um, it's by a guy named Bob Harris, super neat guy, who I've also been in touch with since being on the show. And um, Bob was on, he won five days in a row back when uh, before Ken, when you could only win five days and you got a car. You win five episodes, you get a car, they'd say goodbye. And then they remove that and they stop giving cars away. And, and Ken had his big run not long after that. And um, Bob came back to several tournaments and he had a lot of interesting strategies. So he'd written a book that purported to be Jeopardy strategy, but is really a lovely memoir about his life as well. And uh, But the strategy is really, really good. Like, don't listen to Alex read the clue. You can read faster than he reads aloud. Look at that clue, scan it, break down the words, see what's on there so that by the time he reaches the end and you've got to hit the buzzer, you've already, you know, sussed out the answer because if you wait for him to read it, you're only have a fraction of a second instead of potentially a few seconds, like stuff like that, that um, really helped uh, me in the actual gameplay. So you you don't get to press the buzzer until he finishes reading the clue. It's a very interesting thing. And I think, was it Johnny Gilbert? Somebody, um, you know, Johnny Gilbert, the voice of this is yeah. Jeopardy. He's there. He's 88. He's there every taping day. <laughs> and he has the golden voice. It was so, it was actually like meeting Alex Trebek was great. But like Johnny Gilbert, I mean, that guy's been doing his great voiceover work for like 60 years. He's, you know, he's like uh, Don Pardo. He's in his 90s and still yeah. stays up late to do Saturday Night Live. So Johnny Gilbert, somebody asked him, I think, and in because uh, they do Q&A ahead of time, he sort of warms up the audience. And it's the issue is they figure they're going to have really good contestants. They screen really tightly. So if they didn't let Alex finish, people would be buzzing him and the thing showed up. It would show up and he'd be like, what? And, you know, and the game would be uninteresting for people at home. So you level the playing field among contestants by giving more time and you level the playing field at home. So people don't feel like idiots when they watch because the show has to be appealing the people watching that they feel like they might be able to get the answer. Yeah. Sure. But that means there's this like sub millisecond time, you know, they have a system that one of the producers hits a button or one of the writers hits a button. The moment Alex finishes, it unlocks the board and it is literally can be down to milliseconds of response time uh, between you and someone else. Yeah. Well, well, Jeopardy in the Sparks household is a full contact sport. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 th there aren't many game shows we actually watch. That's probably the only one, but man, 
there is high fives and mocking and everything going on. Even the 11 year old gets it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a dangerous game. Yeah. My eight year old is now Jeopardy obsessed. And so he's counting the days until he can be entered in the uh, kids tournament where you have to be at least 10 years old. And we'll see if, we'll see if we want to do that when the time comes, but he's very interested and he's already becoming a good player. I bet. I bet. So you were on for, you won two shows, correct? You won two days. Yeah. At least on one of them. I, you know, that's the other thing is how do you, I couldn't go back and watch it because we had a family thing and I didn't, wasn't smart enough to tape it or, you know, DVR it. Oh, this you is can't. crazy. It's a syndicate. Syndication is the nuttiest thing is they make their money by airing the show. You can't get Jeopardy except when it airs. Yeah. And then just like randomly find it on a repeat someday. Yeah, I may show up again. I mean, I had three games. The, the first one was was good and tight. And the person I won against, she miswagered at the end, uh, the Daily Double. Right. The second one I did I did better. And I didn't have the right answer, but I had enough money to beat the number two person. The right answer in Final Jeopardy. But I had, a, I had a pile of money, so I felt better about that. And the third one was a lousy game. We were all off, all three of us. And... It was weird to watch. It was weird to play. And the next day, you know, which is minutes later in the taping world, I watched the episode. It was a Monday, which is the was uh, I taped episodes four and five on a Tuesday when I was in L.A. Came back the next morning, Wednesday morning was on and then took off. And so the Tuesday episode for that week, the one after I was on, Alex said, that was a strange game last night. And you're like, yes, it was. That was one of the weirdest <laughs> games of Jeopardy I'd ever seen played. And I was in it. Yeah, I, I, you know, Alex Trebek is a whole nother institution, but we probably shouldn't go there. He's a, he's a fascinating guy. He's a very smart yeah. guy. And he's very, he's very interesting. And boy, does he have that routine down? It's, uh, it's amazing. But so the, here's the bummer. So the thing is, you know, winning money is great. Love it. It was fun. Um, you know, I'm happy about that. The only thing that I'm regret is if I'd won another game and I won just enough more money, I might have been entered into the turn of the champions and I could have gone back and played again. So yeah. you have to win at least yeah. three games and you have to win at this point. I think the cutoff for the next one is something like forty or forty five thousand dollars. So uh, uh, there's that. The, the other thing I was lucky about is there were two seven time winners. I met one as I got there. She lost the game before me. She had won one hundred fifty grand. I won two games. I lost to someone. Then the person I lost to loses to the guy who then goes on to win in a very strong round, seven games and win $150,000. I do not know if I could have beaten either of those people. They're very strong players. I didn't play against weak people, but I would say they were some of the strongest players. You know, they're in the top 15 all-time money winners on Jeopardy. So they were some of the strongest players in the game. I think I'm ranked at like, you know, I'm number 250 or something by dollars. So you, you uh, did dodge a bullet there then. That's my thinking. And then they had a, they, another powerful guy after that. And they've got another one now. So I think I was really played at exactly the right time. I have my two wins. I'm very satisfied. Now, something you did, and this is where we get to the geeky part. You found this database called the J archive. How did you even find that? I didn't know that existed. I am trying to remember who, pointed me towards it. Someone had told me about it. I think it's been kicking around for years. It might even have been in Ken Jennings or Bob Harris's book because um, it's volunteers. People just enjoy the game <clears throat> and they have all of the uh, clues and answers and uh, or clues and questions. I should say the clue is the thing that appears on the board in Jeopardy parlance. And the question is the thing you ask in response. Uh, and they have even the banter that Alex engages with, with, um, with questions. They have who got the answer right and it goes back to almost the origin of the game. I think they're still missing some shows, but they have almost 30 years of this. And 
Now, this I, is crazy. Yeah. It's this massive database. Wow. And it's and they're um so one of the contestants uh, a couple of years ago, this guy named Roger Craig, who uh, also was so because I've been on the show and I've written about it so much, I now have talked to or met the number one, three, four, fifteen, sixteen, and I can't remember like on um, all time money winners. <clears throat> because there's a little, you know, camaraderie. Once you've won, it's like, oh yeah, I won a couple of oh yeah, and then you get to start a conversation where you have an ice. You're in the club. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. And a lot of these people are very nice. There's a guy in town, Tom Nisley, who's in Seattle who uh, is the number uh, three all-time winner and um, super nice guy. And he was in the tournament champions in uh, 2011 as a result. So he won in 2010. So anyway, I'm sorry. There should, there should be like a hat, like with a feather. I got a hat. That's the only thing. They don't give you swag. You did. I didn't get toasters. I didn't oh. get Aunt waffle syrup. I got a Jeopardy cap. That's the only thing I got besides. Does it say well, that's not what the commercials say? Don't it say promotional consideration is provided by? You don't get that. No, like they don't do the anymore. They just they just give. No, they just give it to. Uh, it's uh, it's just advertising money now. It's all money. Well, do you? Does it say champion on your hat? It does not. Sadly, I have to write that I, in with Sharpie marker. I would modify. Well, you can, I'd get it embroidered. You. That's you I know, should. I should go take high tech. Two time winner. But so this guy Roger Craig, who he wound up winning the so the fourth largest amount of money. Then he won the tournament of champions. The next year. So he won like 250 grand in regular play and then he won the $500,000 prize and they will surely bring him back when they do a super champion or ultimate, which they do from time to time as well. And what he did is he took the entire J archive. He's a, he's like a data mining guru. Like that's his job. He does data visualization from rich, blah, 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 blah. I, I read his website. I don't know actually what he does. It's so sophisticated what he's doing with data. So he did something that's pretty simple. If you're a programmer who does that kind of thing, he, uh, scraped the entire J archive, which isn't that much data in the end. And he ran like a statistical analysis to see what kinds of topics, categories, and what specific uh, answers came up most frequently. And then he trained himself. He built something that trains him against that data set. So he knew the things that were most likely to come up and he had memorized the answers for as much of that as he could. Wow. So do they repeat questions? Is that what? Did they pull out of the same archive again? Well, what's weird is there's so there's the there's the sum total of all human knowledge and trivia, and then there's the, sure. the Jeopardy overlap. Like the Venn diagram is interesting. Venn being an answer on a recent Jeopardy, by the way, which I didn't get. Uh, <laughs> who invented the overlapping circle diagram? So the Venn diagram is they have to pick things that people at home won't find so obscure that they'll be offended that stuff so obscure is being shown. So it has to be things within um, the kind of stuff you would learn by reading the news or in high school or college and, you know, Jeopardy seen as a smart show, but you have to say the kind of trivia it has falls into a band and some of it's harder. So you might know the first three answers in a category, but the next two you don't, but you're comforted that you might've heard it once or whatever. So they do, they don't repeat word for word, but um, for instance, the, the, what caused the woman to lose on the first game I played, uh, Aaron bet, uh, daily double right at the end of the second round of the double jeopardy match. And she bet too much. She should have bet $5. She had more than twice as much as I did. She would have won by playing $0 in final jeopardy, but she bet. Whoops. And, yeah. the Whoops. and it's so easy to do. It's so fast. And you just, and there was one question left. So I think she wanted that security. The category wasn't that bad. It was this, uh, you know, this house in, or a house in Dita, Massachusetts, something like this was, um, dated to be built in 1792 using this science of tree ring, uh, you know, counting or whatever. And we're like, what in God's name? And she's finally like, I don't know, tree ringology. The answer was dendrochronology. And you'd think obscure if you're not a forester. And in fact, I had a viewing party and one of the people there, he's the son of a forester and he shouts out dendrochronology. 
<laughs> like, well, you know, dendrochronology had been the answer on the show twice in its history. I mean, so twice before they had used that in a clue. So if you had studied the archives and looked for frequency, it actually is something you might have learned um, if you'd gone to that depth. They ask questions about the Russo-Japanese War all the time. They're obsessed about Kaiser Wilhelm and Otto von Bismarck and um, the War of 1812. There's a lot of war stuff that repeats because there aren't that many wars that people actually know. So in the end, you, um, I picked a bunch of categories I felt that I could master stuff I didn't know in and refresh my knowledge. And it, it really did help on the spot that there were things that I just could come up with instantly that I would not have if I hadn't tried to do this structured uh, remember, uh, uh, sort of re-recording. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. There's only a certain degree of depth they go with the trivia. So you don't have to go super deep on these things. You just have to know of them. Yeah, you have to have a – I mean, so some of it is just super trivia. I mean, there's stuff where you're like, oh, my God, nobody knows that. They hit a whole category on Huguenots uh, some weeks ago, and I was like, Huguenots – you know, I mean, some of it you could guess because of Acadia. There were, you know, there's some hints, but yeah. they tend to not go super obscure. And there'll be these times you're watching the game. You've seen these, David, I'm sure, where where they'll be like, Alex will read a clue, and people are – it's like, ah, 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 and they go down the whole thing, and nobody rings in. And they're like, okay, that wasn't a good one. Let's not do that again. Moving yeah. on. And that happens too. But uh, no, my, my downfall was I uh, – there are two areas I think I was weak on. One was literature, even though I know – I have a fairly good knowledge, but I didn't go back and study particular titles. They like to ask about authors and book titles, but it's just too big an area. And the other was Kings. So in my the third game, it asked about this four-named French author who wrote as a, a male. And I could not remember, but I pulled out George Sands from somewhere. It's George Sand, S-A-N-D, not S-A-N-D-S. And I lost everything. And I managed to get a little bit of money to go into Final Jeopardy. Final Jeopardy in the third day was Kings. And I'm like, I'm not betting anything. I want to win second place because you get $1,000 more for second place. You get two grand and you only get $1,000 for third place. So, in fact, I knew the answer it was one of the only King answers I knew. So that's the <laughs> vagary of the game. Yeah. Well, it's it's impressive that you won it all because like I, I got Jean-Paul Sartre the other night and I thought oh, I was yeah. really smart. Was but cool. now I realize they were just messing with me. They were just making something that was easy for me. <laughs> There's a lot of categories. Now, lawyers could do very well on the show. They ask a lot of law questions. And in fact, the guy who just won, I think, four or five times in a row, law student, and he bet $8,000 on one double jeopardy or one uh, daily double because it was in the law categories. Black's Law Dictionary was the category. And he's like, I got to bet high because otherwise I just can't even go back to school. <laughs> and the answer was slander or the question was, you know, what is slander? And he was right. I have to admit, I, I basically use Black's Law Dictionary to smash bugs on my desk. <laughs> you would have gotten slander, though. If you'd see it was the classical <laughs> yeah, definition, you would have gotten it. I think I would have got that <laughs> one. Yeah. Uh, so, Glenn, did you did you do any of these uh, tools with J-Archive, or did you, what did you do with it before you I just ready? played it like – what I did is I went back through recent games, and I just sat there, and I went through hundreds of days of it, and I just – they hide the clue, or they hide the uh, question, so you can look at the clue and click to get the answer. So I would just look at it and click – you know, try to get the answer, click and see what it was and and try to drill myself in certain areas and identify things like, you know, I'm very bad at mixed drinks and they like potent potables. So I made sure I knew the primary ingredients and a number of drinks that come up all the time. You know, I did some King reading, but not enough. Uh, and presidents. I did a lot of memorization of presidents because they love presidents and vice presidents. And the year a president was in office and they had a final jeopardy not that long ago that was. It was, I think, something like from 1841 to 1851, there were this many presidents had served in office. And the number was like six. 
between assassinations and untimely deaths and um, what have you. And you're like six, but you had to know in your head, you'd have to go through and count those years and know who exactly was in office during that time. Yeah. It seems like every time I watch Jeopardy, Tippecanoe is in one of the oh, questions. Oh, I, I know. They, <laughs> there's things, but it's, uh, it's those things as if you're a regular Jeopardy watcher, you know the answer because you've seen it before too. And that's part of the joy of the show. But their big yeah. problem is because they don't make it available in streaming or any other form is they're losing an audience because there's fewer and fewer people watching broadcast, even people doing, you know, over the air doing DVR taping or what have you. It's a dying audience. It's an older audience and it's a dying audience and it's shrinking. And they have a lot of people on Facebook. I think they have a million some odd or two million likes there. But I think I wish they would figure out they just they can't annoy the affiliates because the affiliates are where the money comes from. So they can't just show it because then people wouldn't watch the local affiliate and watch the ads and so forth. But um, I don't feel like they have a plan for what happens in a few years when broadcast TV has become – it keeps ratcheting down, 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 down. Well, there used to be another trivia show that Regis Philburn did. I forget what it was called. Oh, uh, who, wants millionaire? Be a, who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yes. It's still yes. on the air, but it's a daytime show. Oh, it's a daytime With Meredith show. Fiera, I think. Yeah, it's a daytime God. show. A lot of Jeopardy people go and audition for that show and get on. Yeah, well, I, I watched it once, and it's like there were like four Jeopardy. Uh, there were like four trivia questions in like twenty minutes. I'm like, I it's too much. I can't do it. You know, I need. Yeah, I need you could do that, Glenn. You make I, a lot I, more money I have on to that wait one. A year. What's funny is there's another show called uh, Ask Me Another that um, Mac, Mac World's own Dan Morin just appeared on. It's a show in New York. It's an NPR show, up and coming show. Not uh, a little bit like Wait Wait, but Jonathan Colton is one is like the co-host, sort of sidekick on the show, and he sings and there's a great host. It's a fun show. A friend of mine actually writes for the show. He's one of the two uh, lead question writers. He was a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire question writer, and then he's on uh, helped build this show too. So the downside is I can never go and ask me another. I can't apply to be on the show because I know someone who works. Yeah, you're an insider. Show. I know. Yeah, darn it. Was well, I I want to congratulate you because you know I usually get like three or four right every time I watch it, and I think I'm really smart. And you got a lot more than that right. Well, so thank I'm you impressed very much. It was a hoot, and I, I'm lifetime. You know. One of those things where, like, would you like to be on the show, uh, audition and whatever, but it's like, we want you to come to Culver City. I'm like, I am there. <laughs> I don't well, care how were, I do. You were talking about it in the Macworld Speaker Room last year. I remember you were telling your your story of trying to get on and how things you – know, I guess it's quite a journey. Well, but, it was uh, funny. As they asked me on in January, which is um, – I feel like I – you know, I did – I'm glad I had more time, but I couldn't make the date – that they asked me to in late February and often they won't call again. I might have to audition again. You have to wait a year and a half, uh, go through an online screening test again and so forth and then get called in for an in-person audition again. And instead they called me back uh, six months later and said, we have a slot for you. And I was able to make that one. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, let, let's turn back to the Mac for a minute though. Um, you've, in addition to BB edit and the stuff you're working on, you've been using a Mac for a long time and I'm sure there's a couple little apps in your menu bar or little, you know, small applications that help you get through the day. Could you share a couple of those with us? Well, I'm a big Skype user. And in fact, we're using Skype right now. And, um, I, and I'm a little disappointed in it. And I've talked to a lot of people who do podcasts. In fact, and we've all found it that it seems to have gotten worse. Yeah, Isn't it terrible? It's, it's, this is the best Skype conversation I've had in months, I think, where the conversation hasn't, the, the sound quality hasn't degraded. But Skype is still a great tool, you know, free oh, computer you had to go calls. See that. Yeah, and you can record from it. You can do screen sharing. You can do chat. Um, it's on the iPhone. The version on the iPhone is actually pretty good. So it's cross-platform. So FaceTime, Apple still hasn't opened up, may never open that up. 
but Skype, I feel like, is invaluable. I don't have an actual phone line. I gave that up years ago. I had a Vonage line. I felt like it was too expensive. I gave it up. And in general, in general, Skype has been better than any VoIP service I've used before, including Vonage. On average, it is better. And if it's not a good call, I can hang up and, you know, try it again. But I use it for all my regular phone calling and for all my computer to computer as much as I can. So are you using like a headset or a handset or anything like that with Skype? I or, do. I've or got just- a nice little Sennheiser headset um, that's usually pretty good. And right now I'm talking to you. I got a Yeti microphone because I was doing so much podcasting and the headset mic is okay. But I'm like, you know, if I'm serious about it, as you guys are, I'm sure as well, it's like you need something that produces a good range of sound and is consistent and isn't going to, you're not going to hit by accident when you wave your hands around as I am doing right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it makes a difference. It's only a hundred bucks, right? I mean, you know, for if you don't do podcasts, if you're not recording things, then a hundred dollars is a lot of money. For me, I'm doing um, something like a marketplace tech report where I've uh, been, I get interviewed on that show re- uh, relatively regularly for years. And I can record my side of the audio now. We do we talk over Skype or they call me on the phone. I record it and I send my side of the audio as we do here. And then it's not this scratchy phone call that they have to air on the radio. It's actually something that sounds somewhat like it's in a studio. I think that's great. Yeah, sometimes it sounds like um, we've reverted. You know, it's like mm. you feel like you, the other guy at the end has a radio that you wind up and he's yelling for Sparky. You know, it's <laughs> it really has the, the quality has gone down a lot of ways. But getting a good mic can make a huge difference. You know, the Yeti's also good. I don't know if you do any dictation stuff, but just if you've got it plugged into your mic, dictate into it. Well, I hadn't thought about that. It's for, for me, it's just uh, it was such a leap in quality. And, um, you know, I'm on, we do uh, I think this is um I think I've done five or six guest spots on podcasts. See, you win Jeopardy, and no, but I mean, some of his timing is like I've wanted. I've talked to you guys for years, and um, uh, it's just I've done a lot of spots lately, and I'm like, I'm glad I sound good. I don't want to sound like kind of crummy and tinny when I'm doing this sort of work. And I do the incomparable podcast on a regular basis as part of that crew, and you know, sometimes do one every few weeks there too. So it's just, yeah, I love your appearances on the incomparable, oh, by thanks. the way, I can, we can always count on Glenn for some German reference. I try to keep, I try to mix it up. I can get Jason's goat because I incidentally have met like a thousand famous people. I mean, none of them are like my great buddies or anything. Just like, you know, I had Werner Herzog in my offices in um, an early web company for an hour. I got to hang out with Werner Herzog for an hour. And so I just like to drop that in there because it drives Jason a slightly crazy. It's very fun. Well, now, now you just made me a little angry. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That's my plan. So any other great tools that, that people need to know about or people need to be using? Well, that's a good question. I think I've run through a lot of the stuff, you know, uh, that I use every day. I mean, MailSmith, BB Edit, Firefox. I still stuck with Firefox. Those are sort of the triumvirate of what I use. Um, I also wrote a book about messages. Any program I have to use enough, um, the Messages app in Mountain Lion is so maddening. I had to write a book about it to explain the things that people kept asking me how to do in it. So I, yeah, it's supposed to be simple, but it's not. Well, they mixed. It's at first I thought they'd taken iChat and new things and mashed them together, and then I realized that the interface is just confusing, and the uh, the main messages window is actually a fairly decent dashboard for everything you can do. But Apple did not expose enough clues and breadcrumbs to make you realize it. For instance, did you know? You probably know this, but Adamanx. I'll tell you this: Adamanx did not know this until he had a conversation about two weeks ago. Did you know that the video uh, recording icon in the main messages window, that is a drop-down menu. It's not a button. 
I don't think I knew that. <laughs> it's crazy. It took me, I was working with it for months before I'm like, how do I get an audio, start a FaceTime call or an audio call through the old iChat system? You click yeah. on this oh. thing. Uh-huh. And you're like, okay, they did not reward discovery there, right? That's, I mean, they did and that I had to finally mess around with it, but that's not clear. And I feel like, you know, where are transcripts stored? How do I bring up transcripts? How do I store them? Um, how do I start a new conversation? Why do my conversations jump up and down in the left bar? What is a conversation? Why is there a um, iMessage label next to every pop-up item, but it's not uh, – it's, sometimes there's a blue icon next to it, and sometimes it just says iMessage. So, yeah. So, I mean, this is my modus operandi. Is I write books about things I don't understand, and that's that was certainly one of them. So, I use messages constantly ever since um, – you know, I started having more friends. I'd always had family, but I had more friends who are routine iMessage users when Mountain Lion came out and it actually worked correctly, right? Because the beta in Lion was terrible by the end. It started working worse, more and more poorly. Uh, so I use that all the time. And that's become my go-to place for messaging. I rarely type on my phone if I'm sitting in front of a computer. And sometimes it doesn't coordinate or sync well, but um, I- I'm surprised how usable it is once you get over the hump of what Apple is trying to hide from. You. <laughs> well, and you know, Glenn, we we have already, uh, at least I have already uh, implied that I would like you to come back because there's a subject which you write on a, a lot, which I think we need to share with our audience, and that's networking, home networking, oh, Wi-Fi, yeah. and all that stuff. I mean, you wrote, and you just did a series on backups too, I think. Yeah, yeah. What did I do most recently? I, I just a bunch of sync articles. Um, I did some. Yeah, it's it, it's. I've wound up testing almost. I think I've tested about. 15 GPS satellite navigation programs for Macworld for iOS. And I think I've tested like 10 or 15 sync and backup programs over the last three years for them as well. Yeah. Well, the, but the Wi-Fi networking news is something I used to read. It was a, a blog you wrote about Wi-Fi technologies and, you know, you were the guy. And to this day, I think a lot of people have questions about setting up networks at home. And, you know, like the article you wrote for Macworld on the Airport Express, the new Airport Express was just great. I mean, I really thought it was fantastically done. And, and you're very knowledgeable at the, this stuff. I think we definitely have to have you back when, you know, when the dust settles and nobody wants to talk to you about being on Jeopardy <laughs> anymore. Like, but it's old hat. In the, new yeah. year, in the new year, well, and also I expect uh, – I'd love to come back and I also expect Apple – has got to have some airport updates up its sleeve for probably like February or March. They like to, you know, for some reason, airport is either October or February. And they often just slip it into another announcement. They're like, yes, we have the new Mac Pro and a press release comes out and they don't even say anything about it. We have our new three radio airport extreme that's cheaper and better than everything else in the market. And you're like, wait, wait, why did you slip that? that wait, that should be uh, an actual announcement on stage. So, yeah, you know, I, I think they're due for one, too, because it's been a while since they've done anything really interesting there. And I had this, I don't know, it was like a four-year-old airport extreme or, and it, it just died. I mean, just completely gave up the ghost on me two months ago and it broke my heart because I need, you know, my, uh, my wife is saying, Hey, Max Sparky, will you please make sure we have internet in our house? And because, you know, part of me was tempted to go get like the cheapest thing I could find, but you know, we use it for so much. Oh, you just, the cheapest thing will cause you pain. In the yeah. end, um, yeah, it's. I haven't tested. I actually I gave up. I want to say not for Lent, but it seems like it's something like that. Like I gave up for sanity. Um, I stopped testing other uh, Wi-Fi routers. I used to do quite a bit of it until maybe I don't know four years ago, and I realized it's just so hard to test enough circumstances. There's so many features. I felt like 
I don't really want to write 8,000 word articles about a router, but if I don't, I'm not really explaining what the differences are and what it does. So <clears throat> the airport express was very easy to write an update on because it was, okay, you know what this does and here's what they've done to make it more like an airport extreme, even though it's not, it's a much more comparable item now. And that was bite-sized and manageable, but I would love to come back and talk about Wi-Fi and home networking and file sharing and all that stuff. All right. It's, it's a date. We're going to do that. On. Yeah. We're going to do that <laughs> next year. And uh, we're going to talk a lot. In fact, I'm lately very excited about using my airport express and my Apple TV for presentations. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that then too. Well, Glenn, thanks so much for coming on. Such a pleasure. Right. You've, you've extracted everything I know now for the moment. I'll have to go get new yep. knowledge for next time. We've ringed you out. We've got everything. <laughs> That's okay. So if we ever want to build a a, a J archive, or actually a G archive, I'm sorry. That's right. G. Everything Glenn gonna... knows that you didn't want to know. That's what my 100,000 Twitter tweets is about. It's the G archive. How many Twitter tweets do you have? I think you know, I'm that's up right. to 120,000 now. You know, I follow you, and you do tweet quite a bit, Mr. Fleischer. I also talk to other people. So a lot of it, there are a lot of at mentions that no one sees. So that does tend to inflate the account. But, yeah, yeah, I think Twitter for me is a little bit like an extension of stream of consciousness. I think of it as part of my um, forebrain or something. So it's, uh, it's a dangerous tool. <laughs> well, I, I enjoy them, so it's <laughs> fine with me. Just keep them coming. <laughs> well, Katie um, – so, Glenn, people can find you. I see you've got a website called glennf.com. Yeah, I have and, some details uh, there. I occasionally update a blog at blog.glennf.com, and I live on Twitter at G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank. And on and also, and also now, of course, on AppNet. Everyone has to be on ADN and Twitter. Yeah. Nice and quiet on AppNet to have really good discussion, long, interesting, threaded discussions there. Very entertaining. I, every time I write something smart, and I realized I put it on Twitter. I'm like, dang it. That was something I could have put on AppNet. <laughs> That's and right. I still haven't got it quite figured post. out. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm afraid post. that, yeah, if, if you put it on both, then you're going to look like, uh, you know, a, a neophyte. And I can't do that. No. So I, I, I'm a lot, I have a lot of stress over this. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> but anyway. So, Katie, uh, how about us? Where do you find the Mac Power users? Well, we've uh, got a lot of links, got a lot of good stuff we talked about in the show, and you can find links to all of that stuff on our website at 5x5.tv slash MPU or at MacPowerUsers.com. And if you have any comments about the show, uh, if you want to touch base with us, uh, you can do that um, by emailing us at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Yeah, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at MacPowerUsers. And Katie's at Katie Floyd. I'm at Max Barkey. And both Katie and I are on app.net with the same handles. Yep, we are. Pretty original. Um, and I think that's that's probably going to wrap us up for, for today. So thank you so much, Glenn, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. And can't wait to have you back to talk more about Wi-Fi and backup and whatever else you happen to be writing about. It's delightful to be here, and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. You're the one you know.